0: Good morning. So as you think about Easter and all the events that go with that and everything, uh, it's great to just have the focus on this week. Uh, Easter is one of those holidays that sometimes gets kind of lost in the translation of everything else that is going on, right? I mean, we have uh, spring break. You know, I re- I'm old enough to remember back when it was Easter break uh, in school, but now it's spring break. And we have chocolate Easter rabbits, and we have uh, eggs that are hollow, full of great stuff, and we have baskets with green grass. And uh, sometimes I think your neighbors and my neighbors have no idea what it is that we're celebrating. They don't really understand. I know for me, uh, growing up as a non-Christian, Easter was always a confusing holiday, I knew it had something to do with religion, uh, that some people were very passionate about it. You know, you even think about Passion Week. What does Passion Week mean? How does that hit the ears of people who are not educated in the church? You know, where, was somebody in love? Uh, well, yeah, as it turns out, there was. God was in love with his people, right? But for me, it was just all about the chocolate, just to be real honest, you know, uh, I had one of those years when I was a little guy, uh, about eight years old. Uh, I had had my eye accident; my right eye got hit by an arrow, and so I had to go to the hospital. And my mom told me that they were going to remove the eye, and it was going to be a surgery, and all that kind of stuff. And you go through all that traumatic, you know, emotions and so forth. But it was going to be over Easter that I was in the hospital. I was in there for about two weeks, and that really had some side benefits, actually, if you're a mercenary like I was in those days. But on my room, my bed was right next to the window, and the window itself had a, you know, sort of a box seat about a foot wide. And my mother worked for uh, Northwestern Bell in Omaha, and all of her friends really felt bad for Mrs. Foster's little boy who had to have surgery. And so I was inundated with... All kinds of chocolate rabbits, right? Chocolate eggs, giant Easter baskets. My mom was kind of a minimalist when it came to that stuff, so I'd never before seen an Easter quite like this one. In fact, I didn't really get to see this one because both of my eyes were patched up. They didn't want me to have what they call sympathetic blindness, so I had to wear a patch for you know almost a half a year, actually, as it turns out. But as I was laying in my bed, I got to kind of flick the tape, you know, as a young person will do, and just kind of pull that eggshell off of my face, and I could see that window shelf full of chocolate, full of bunnies and Easter eggs, and that was great. You know, people feel sorry for you and they, they don't know what to say or what to do. And so they say, Would you like, you know, some candy or something? Started a lifetime, actually, of probably pretty bad habits. But uh, <clears throat> that's the way it was. And it was all good, unless my brother and my cousins came up to the room to visit. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, but, you know, uh, when you can't see, people also believe you can't hear. Uh, And my mom, you know, would say, now, Dean, that's my brother, you know, you can have one of those chocolate rabbits. And Dean would say, well, he'll hit me. Don't worry, he can't hear you. (laughs) Hello, you know, I'm right here. I may not see him, but I can hear him. And Dean, there's going to be a comeuppance if you go anywhere near my window seal, Uh, But still, nevertheless, I'm sure he helped us. My favorite thing, though, was a popcorn bunny. It was about that high. And just like you get a popcorn ball at Halloween, at least they used to, this was a bunny (coughs) made out of popcorn. And I, oh, I wanted that so badly. There was a boy in the bed next to me. Uh, He was quite a bit older than me, actually. And he was kind enough. I don't even remember his name or why he was there. But after everybody had left at night, and sometimes in the middle of the night, he would go over there and he'd just say, Dave, you know, do you want to eat some of your stuff? (laughs) Sure. And I said, just give me the popcorn. I want the bunny, you know. So he would do that. We just had a great time. Well, that was Easter to us. We didn't understand everything that goes into it. And actually, quite often, even God's people don't really see What's happening with this? Well, we're going to be looking in Matthew 21 just to get a handle on exactly what this week, this holy week, this passion week should mean. Right? So we're in Matthew chapter 21. And just to set the scene, um, we really want to go back one week before this, right? We want to go back to the previous Saturday. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk in real time. Today is Sunday. We call it the triumphant entry Sunday, but back in the day of Jesus, 2,000 some years ago, this was just a Sunday, and they hadn't experienced all the things that we're going to be going through. Well, think of it this way. The previous week on Saturday in the Orthodox Church is called Resurrection Saturday because a certain gentleman had been raised from the dead, believe it or not. Uh, by a man by the name of Lazarus. Uh, Jesus had some friends in the town of Bethany, Mary and Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. And Jesus had been called to come quickly, come here. Lazarus is sick, he needs you. They had the faith to believe that Jesus could heal their brother. And I don't know if Jesus purposely delayed to make a point or he just was coming as fast as he could, But the fact is that Lazarus died some four days before Jesus could even get to Bethany. And by the time he got there, Lazarus had been in his family tomb for some time, wrapped in the burial clothes, tissue degenerating, uh, the smell of decay, of death. And when Jesus got there, there's definitely a hint of bitterness in the greeting he receives from Mary and Martha. Thank you, you know, for coming, but it's too late. Uh, It's over. Uh, He's dead. Jesus, of course, is not dissuaded by this. And so he goes to the tomb, and in Jesus' way, I'm sure very understatedly, he just says, Lazarus, come forth. And to the amazement of everybody, but especially to his disciples, I'm sure, Lazarus comes out of that grave. now Jesus had raised people from the dead before you know right we have the, the the widow's child and we have all these different events but everybody before it was just kind of a matter of hours he got there just as that person died and there might have been some who were thinking well that's exciting but maybe the person just passed out I mean this was before the day of stethoscopes and other kind of medical equipment to determine if the person was really, truly dead. But with Lazarus, there was no doubt uh, what had happened. And in fact, uh, when Lazarus came forth, it caused such a stir, such a reaction by the people that it just Jesus' fame just spread through Jerusalem and around the surrounding towns. If we look in John chapter 12, Uh, we see just what kind of ruckus this caused, and I call it a ruckus, because the people that had formerly been faithful, loyal followers of their father's religion, now all of a sudden were being forced to observe Jesus and see him in a whole different light, to listen to him. But in John 12, we read, uh, verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came Uh, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. So in a sense, they didn't just want to hear what he was saying. They wanted to see the result of his actions. Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Jesus to death as well. Well, wait, wait a minute. That's not what the text says. Who are they going to put to death? Lazarus. He's already been dead once. He won't mind. We'll just throw him back in the tomb, right? No, they had to put him back to death because the, the fame of what had happened had spread everywhere. Verse 11, because, because on account of, the, of him, many of the Jews were going away. Going away from what? Going away from their devotion, from their membership, in a sense, from their church, and believing in Jesus Christ. Wow. So on Resurrection Saturday, Lazarus had been raised from the dead, and everyone had heard about it. It had caused such a stir that even the chief priests and scribes, the Sanhedrin themselves, had been plotting on how to kill Jesus, but until they could get to that point, because of his fame among the crowds, they couldn't really touch him yet, they decided, well, maybe we'll kill the product of his miracle, Lazarus. That's how much this disrupted them. This is the problem. So, if today is Sunday, yesterday and the day before, Jesus would just come. I have a map, actually. I don't know if you can see it up on your screen. Um, but there is a little map. It's kind of probably hard to see from your position. But <clears throat> on your right side is the road coming up from Jericho going into Jerusalem. And this road was about 15 miles long. It's uphill. It's full of twists and turns and so forth. And it was a dangerous road, Uh, dangerous for a couple of reasons, but one of which is you didn't want to be on it at night. It was famed to be full of highwaymen, robbers. You could lose your life on this road. But Jesus and his men had been in Perea, Judea, Jericho, and now they were coming back to Bethany, the scene of the miracle, the raising of Lazarus. And they wanted to get to town by Friday night to celebrate the Sabbath. Sabbath began at Friday night, sunset, went through the night and into the day of Saturday, and it ended on Saturday evening. They wanted to be with their friends. They wanted to be with Mary and Martha. Now, this isn't just the 12. That's what we often think that Jesus is just traveling with his 12 apostles. But what he's traveling with is his old entourage, his disciples, uh, the people that had been attracted to his ministry, and also the women, the Galilean women that had been following him all along Mary Magdalene, his mother Mary, and other Marys. But there were many that were in this group. So there was quite a group of people that descended on Bethany, which is on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. And if you can see that map, the Mount of Olives is just a ridge right before you get to Jerusalem, right? It's not that big, but it is there, and it's got four summits at the top, and it's called the Mount of Olives because in the ancient days there was an olive grove that was up on top. And on the east side of that is the small town of Bethany. And this is going to be the jump-off spot for the rest of this week. This will be the place where Jesus returns night after night to get ready for the next day's activities. So they celebrate the Sabbath, and on Saturday night, last night, something happens. Mary, probably Mary of Bethany, who lives in this town, comes out and she brings to Jesus this, this container. It's probably uh, about a pound, it says in scripture, of nard. Spike nard is its official name. And it's the most wonderful perfume that you could have. Uh, its value exceeded anything that most of these Galileans had ever seen before. Uh, Mary and Martha probably weren't wealthy, but they were doing okay. It's more than likely that this Perfume had been passed down from one generation to the next. It was a family inheritance. And on this particular night, without explanation, Mary approaches her Lord, uh, and she dumps this. She anoints this. She sprinkles this. She puts it on Jesus. She basically is doing this. She's saying, you're the king. You're worth it. You deserve it. There's no better use for it. I'm putting this on you. Now, I don't know if you're sensitive to smell, right? I'm married to a woman that is incredibly sensitive to smell. I usually keep a bottle of cologne in my desk drawer at work in my old office because I can't put it on at home. It bothers I own. I used to have a young man that worked with me, uh, Nate McGlumfrey. He's now a missionary in Australia but he also was incredibly sensitive to smell. And in my younger days, I was, you know, being me, a little bit ornery, and I knew that Nate was coming over to my office to meet with me. I would purposely just, you know, a couple things of cologne as before he walked in there, and he would always be, oh, Dave, come on, have mercy. This stuff is just stinks. You know, I, but this is nard, Right? you're not going to Target to buy this, right? You're going to Neiman Marcus to buy this. You're going to Saks to buy this. This is the stuff. You know, and typically when you think about it, when you have a great, you know, perfume, you can just put a little bit on a fingertip and just touch your face. And instantly that smell goes out and you can just inhabit your nostrils, your, your, your senses, and you smell it. And it will last for hours. But this is a pound, a pound. And she puts it on Jesus. Now, have you ever put something on yourself and then tried to wash it off? You know, I, I, I'll cut onions for chili, you know, in the middle of the winter. I love to do that, cut that stuff up. But even after I shower, <laughs> My hands can still smell like onion. Jesus, no matter what he did, this smell, this anointing, it was on him. And and why? What's the point of this? Is it a great waste, as Judas tries to say? No. It's an anointing for royalty. This is the odor. This is the scent of of a royal person. This is what the kings of Israel were anointed with. Jesus was being readied to proclaim who he was. That was last night. This morning, it's Sunday. Jesus has sent two of his disciples to Bethpage, probably to a man that was either a follower of his or a friend of Mary and Martha and Lazarus to pick up a colt a mule, and its mother, a mare, and to bring them back to him. It was prearranged. Jesus said, all you have to do is go say, the master needs it, and he will give it to you. Matthew is the only one that records that there were two. Why were there two? Well, in a second, we're going to see that he's going to ride this colt into Jerusalem. It's a two-mile, almost uphill ride on the back of this colt And a cult hasn't been trained on where to go and how to trot. And so if you put the mother with it, it will guide it. It will make it go. But let's not get ahead of our story. Let's look at Matthew 21. And I'm going to start uh, reading there. It says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Um, Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This is a Zechariah chapter 9, 9 quote, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt. Uh, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, their clo- put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. He, Jesus, sat on them. Wow. Now, this seems so strange. It's, it's Sunday morning. Sabbath was yesterday. Jesus had been anointed last night. Now, Jesus has this colt, this mule, and he's telling the guys, you know what? I'm going to ride this colt into Jerusalem. Now, if that had been you and me, we would have probably been thinking, okay, you know, we've walked everywhere. We've walked in, from Nazareth to Capernaum, from Capernaum around Galilee. We've walked through Samaria. And now, now you want to ride a colt? What is going on here? But they didn't ask that. They knew exactly what Jesus was trying to do. Jesus was making a proclamation. He was saying, this is who I am. Now, if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, the previous three years of ministry that Jesus did, you know that most of the time when Jesus did a miracle, he told the people that he was helping, just keep it quiet. This is just between me and you, right? I I healed your leprosy. Just report to the priest and go through the mosaic law steps of being cleansed and being clean so that you can present yourself and go back into society. But don't tell them where this happened. Don't tell anybody. You know, I'm going to spit in your eye, but I'm going to bring so you can see again. I'm going to heal your blindness. But you don't have to tell everybody. We never see Jesus saying, make sure that you tell everybody you meet, come see Jesus. I'm in Nazareth, anytime. No, he's just quiet. Just keep it between us. But today, this Sunday, today, it's different. They put their robes on top of this little cult. This was a sign of respect. This is the master. And then they helped Jesus get on this cult, And they push the colt. And the ride begins. And it's not just, like I said earlier, 12 people following Jesus. It's the crowds are coming out to see what is going on. And the reason that these men knew that this was something special is because in their culture, in the way that they lived, this immediately sprung forth, all kind of remembrances of stories from the old testament of verses psalm 118 psalm 8 of david's sons riding to their meeting with absalom uh in second samuel chapter 13 on donkeys on mules because that's what royalty did only the king and the king's family could ride on these beasts uh we're thinking of first kings chapter one i'll just go there real quick 1 Kings chapter 1, there's a battle for the throne going on. David is an old man. He's almost dead, right? And Bathsheba comes to him, his wife, and says, David, I'm concerned for our son. Will he be king after you're gone? Because I tell you what, his brother Adonijah is downtown, and he and his friends are feasting, and the people are already shouting that Adonijah is king. Adonijah is king. Adonijah is king. And David said, no, that's not the way it's going to be. So he calls the priest, Zadok, to him, Nathan, the prophet, and Benaniah, one of his chief men. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take my son, Solomon, right? And I'm reading from uh, verse 38 here. And the Cherethites and the Parathites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon, to the springs. And there Zadok the priest anoints Solomon as king. And I love this scenery. After the anointing ceremony is over, then they blew the trumpets and all the people said, long live King Solomon. And the people went up after him playing on pipes, rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. Now, The writer of Kings is using a little hyperbole. I don't think that an earthquake happened that day. But he's just saying it was a cacophony of sound. Solomon comes into Jerusalem on David's mule. The point of this, I hope we didn't miss that, is that all the people recognize David's animal. This was the royal mode of transportation. This was David's beast. And Solomon's writing on that? Well, the only way that Solomon would be allowed to write on that is if there had been a transfer of power with permission from his father. And here he comes. And the people are playing instruments and dancing, and there's a mass celebration. And Adonijah and his friends are feasting, and they hear the noise, and they look out the door, and they say, Oh my goodness, it's happened. This day we have lost the throne, and they make a hasty retreat. But nevertheless, the king has been identified. He's coming. He's coming on a mule. When Jehu, uh, later on, one of the kings of northern Israel, uh, is coming up in the ranks, he's a general under King Ahab, and he is a fierce, ferocious man. And at one point, Elisha, the prophet's servants, come to him and say, forget the kings. God does not like Ahab's son, Jehor, and he doesn't like the king of Judah, Amaziah. Instead, God wants you to be king. And they anoint him, Jehu, to be king. And the men spread their blankets out before uh, Jehu, their, their robes. And Jehu walks on them to their great praise and shouting, Jehu is king. And Jehu takes care of business. He meets the other two kings in their chariots. And they ask him, is this peace? And he says, no. And he shoots shoots one with an arrow right through his heart. The king of Israel, he's dead. And then they chase the king of Judah and they kill him. And he goes through and he wipes out all of Ahab's sons, all 70 of them. And he kills all of Amaziah's family members. And then he invites all of the priests of Baal and says, if Ahab worship Baal a little, Jehu will worship him a lot. It says in the scriptures, not one Baal priest stayed home. They all came to the temple of Baal, but it was a trap. And Jehu, the king who had been praised, who had been honored by the people with a path of ropes on the ground, he kills every priest of Baal. In the intertestamental period between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, the Maccabees are in a fierce revolt against their Greek overlords, right? The abomination of desolation that Daniel had foretold had happened. The temple had been desecrated by Antiochus, the Greek general, And the Maccabees could not take it any longer. And they revolt and against all odds. But with the help of God, I'm sure, they win. And we see Simon Maccabee. The people are cheering as he comes into Jerusalem after having won the day. And they've spread their robes on the ground. And they have palm branches. And they're waving them. And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, as he enters into the town riding his colt. So, Sunday morning, today, Jesus is getting on a colt. His followers have put some robes on there, almost like a saddle. But it signifies their deep respect for this man. And as he rides those two miles up to the gate Huldah to Jerusalem, people are shouting, just as we did this morning, Hosanna, which literally means save us. Save us! Hosanna to the king. To the who? To the son of David. Just like Solomon. Now, those praises were amazing. It really, really set the day off. But only Jesus understood what was really going on. His followers thought this is it. We've been waiting for three years for Jesus to finally tell people who he really is. The kingdom of God is upon us. He's going to do it. We've been begging him. And now today our master has thought that this Sunday, this is the day. And so as that mule makes its way and the people are waving the fronds and the smell of that nard is being wafted through the air by these palm branches as he moves, and the smell of royalty hits their nostrils, and they recognize that this is an act of a king. He's on a mule. He's going into Jerusalem, right to the temple mount. People are fickle. People had all different reasons for shouting Hosanna that morning. They wanted a military king. They wanted a political king. Some of them may even have wanted a true Messiah. But Jesus knew that it would be just a matter of days, right? This is this Sunday. Next Sunday, he will have already suffered and been killed on that cross. And then he's going to rise again. But they didn't have a clue. See, we live on the other side of this whole event. We know what happens. We've seen the story play out. But these people, they're just thinking, Jesus might overthrow the Romans. He might get rid of Herod's family. We might, again, be like in the days of David and have a united kingdom. He will call all of the Jewish people back home. The diaspora had already happened. People were spread all over the known Roman Empire. The Jews were not together. And this king probably will do that for us. They were so excited. Jesus gets to town and he sees the people. And he should have been just full of joy and, oh, this is so wonderful. But instead, he weeps. He knows that these people have fallen in sin and they need a Savior. And the only way that they're going to get a Savior is if this king, this prophet, this priest, this Messiah goes to the cross and gives his life so that you and I might have life. No one else knew that, no one else understood that. And it says right in the Word. In John 12, that after all these events happened, after the Passion Week and Jesus is risen again, that they begin to understand all of these things during this week that happened. Now, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, it's not universal love for him, right? The chief priests and scribes, they're horrified. The people of Jerusalem are saying, what is going on? It says there's a tremendous stir in the town, and people are wondering, who is this man? And when they hear it's Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth, they just kind of join in. Yeah, Hosanna, Hosanna. But Jesus knows it's not going to last. He knows that these same people will willingly barter his life for a known rebel, Barabbas, in just a few short days but still it's an image it's there now the day is coming according to the word of god when jesus is going to come back and the next time that he returns it won't be in the humble fashion of riding a colt he'll be on a magnificent charger possibly but the imagery really is that he's got one sandal planted in the mount of olives right and one further west and he is ready to judge those who have rejected him. You see, what's going on here is not just an announcement that the Messiah is there. It's a pronouncement to the world that salvation is changing. It's no longer just focused on the Israeli people. It's not just the covenant relationship of God with his people. It's now going to spread out, to more. And the reason I know this is because on the next day, on Monday, Jesus returns from Bethany. Uh, He had ridden in on the donkey yesterday on Sunday. Now it's Monday and he goes into town and I don't know what the conversation was like on that hike into Jerusalem if his men were saying, well, what's on the docket for today, Lord? What are you going to do? I mean, the people think you're the great king. Yeah, is this when you're going to take over? And I, I think he probably just said, guys, stand back. I've got to do something here, and it's probably best that you don't identify with me right now. And the next thing we know, he is coming into the temple, charging and kicking over tables and kicking over bench seats. It says that right here in Matthew 21, again, verse 12. And Jesus enters the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. Whoa, Jesus, what are you doing? They thought you were a king yesterday, and now you're coming in here, and you're kicking over the essential worship elements of the temple? Now, some people look at this, and they think, well, what's going on here is that, yes, the money changers, you know, Jesus was against business happening in the church, in a sense right? But no, that can't be it. Because that was necessary. Everybody had to pay a temple tax. And so people who were coming from other countries, they brought in Roman money, Antiochian money, you know, Turkish money, and they had to change it into an acceptable currency for their temple tax. So the money changers were a necessary part of temple worship. Uh, that's, that's not it. Well, Maybe he didn't like the way that they gouged people with high prices for pure animals, right? These men are selling goats and lambs and doves because they had to be animals without blemish, without anything wrong with them. And they would charge foreigners a huge amount of money for these animals so that they could take them and have them sacrificed by the priest and their sins forgiven. And yes, while that is reprehensible, uh, he could have done that in a many different ways. So, why is he kicking everything over? What is he doing? Well, I have a, a map of the temple. I don't know if it's up there right now. But he's actually in the outer courts, right? He's outside of the inner sanctum of that temple on the south side, and he is in the court of the Gentiles. This is, you remember, a time when the Gentiles were not allowed to come in and do the pure worship of God. With everyone else who was Jewish. Uh, They were called God-fearers in the Hebrew. We're just from another nation, but we are attracted because of your ethics, because of your relationship, because of the covenant, and we want to become like you. And so they could come and offer offerings. They could come and have their sins sacrificed for, but they had to stay in a certain segment. And the money changers and the selling of animals happened in this court to the Gentiles. And Jesus comes through there just like a a scythe. He just clears the area of anything that takes attention away from the fact that something new is happening. Remember yesterday, he came into town on a cult. He announced publicly that the Messiah is here. Today, he is saying to the Gentiles, there's a blessing for you. I don't know if you're a Gentile this morning. This is amazing, right? This is the best news you could possibly hope for. Uh, Before, salvation had been limited to the Jewish people in a sense. But now, I think Jesus is trying to communicate to the Sanhedrin, to the chief priests, and to the scribes that this is never going to be the same again. Right? And then look what he does in the next verse. 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them the blind and the lame? Well, the blind and the lame weren't allowed just like the Gentiles. They weren't allowed in. You see, they had deformity. They were missing an eye. They had something broken. They weren't perfect. They couldn't go in. They, they sat around the outskirts of this area begging for money. People were coming in. Like I said, there were thousands of people in town for the Passover, and this would be a great time for them to get some help. And Jesus goes around and he says, "You know what? We're going to change things." And he just bam, 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 and he heals all of these people. Those who couldn't walk now have their legs strengthened. Those who couldn't see can now see. And they can now go and worship God. It's it's over. The way that you guys, you churchmen ran church, it's over. The Messiah has come. Hosanna, Hosanna. And when this was seen, what happens? The children break out, imitating the same chant they had heard yesterday, right? And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. And then who's indignant? The chief priests, the scribes. They were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these guys are saying? Tell them to be quiet. Jesus says, I can't do it he's announcing who he is. I have a sheet of paper as we're done this morning, and it has on it a uh, listing of what happens every day of the week. What a great way to have devotions this week or with your families. Lead them in devotions. There's verses. So if you look at like what happens on Tuesday, you can just go right across on Passion Week. This is what happened. These are the verses. Uh, Silent Wednesday, Maundy Thursday, and so forth. And they're waiting for you in the back, so I hope you'll grab one on your way out. But the point is this, Jesus is changing himself. He's announcing himself as the Messiah, and he's letting everyone know that things are going to be different.